Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwarztrauber. On today's show, do progressive cities fight innovation? My guest seems to think so, but with an incendiary title like that, who would actually read this book if you're a progressive? Maybe progressives aren't the audience. I'm going to ask him. <laughs> My guest is Jared Meyer, Senior Fellow at the Foundation for Government Accountability. He's been on this show many, many, many times, probably my most frequent guest. And uh, we're going to talk about his book today. So, Jared, thanks for joining the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Evan. So this month, your book came out, How Progressive Cities Fight Innovation. Now, I've got a bone to pick with you because both of us grew up in progressive cities. You're from Chicago. I'm from New York City. And look at us now. We're highly successful people at think tanks uh, working on innovation. So how could it possibly be that these cities where people are using Uber, they're using Airbnb, they're using technology, you've got San Francisco, the heart of innovation, New York City has a tech sector, even cities like Atlanta and Austin. How is it the progressive cities where the innovation actually happens are the ones fighting innovation? Well, and you forgot to say that we both live in D.C. right now. So, yeah, yes. we just can't get enough of them. But my point <laughs> is I love cities. I think they're going to be the driving force of economic growth or continue to be that. And what I worry about is that a lot oftentimes these, you know, seven, nine, 13 member city councils, they're not thinking about how they can encourage innovation. They're not thinking about the technologies that are going to be coming in two decades. And I'm worried that in their push to, let's say, just do whatever uh, the latest special interests are telling them to do, they're going to threaten city status as the drivers of innovation. So I just want state policymakers to realize that when progressive cities are fighting against someone's right to earn a living or the ability to use technology to help the middle and lower class, what we need to do is have states come in and overrule cities. And in your book, when you say innovation, you're mostly talking about the sharing economy, correct? Well, I use the sharing economy as two examples because it's something that even people who don't live in cities have used when they come to visit cities. So rather than trying to talk about how with drones or autonomous vehicles or any of these things, right, I have to spend a lot of time explaining the technology. And a lot of time researching it. Yeah, that's true. I I like being able to copy paste my other stuff that we've talked about on the podcast in the past. That's very innovative, Jared. <laughs> you're, you're, you're decreasing the transaction cost of doing a podcast with me. So you, you use examples like Uber and Airbnb, and these are things that uh, a lot of Americans are familiar with at this point. Now, like I said earlier, you know, D.C. seems pretty friendly to ride sharing. Uh, you know, when you go to cities like New York, uh, you can use an Uber. I mean, where, where, what is the problem when it comes to progressive cities and innovation and the sharing economy? Well, look, at D.C. might have okay regulations right now, but my first article I ever wrote on Uber was back in 2013 when D.C. was trying to ban it because they were appealing to, again, public safety arguments, some of the same tired ones we've used over and over. And back then, they were actually claiming that Uber and ride sharing was bad for consumers. That argument's obviously now changed. Yeah, it's 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 a lot cheaper than taking a cab. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what we've seen is city after city, rather than welcoming new services with open arms, it's just frankly a whole lot easier to buy a city council member than to buy a U.S. senator if you're trying to get special treatment. So that's why we saw, I think, the short-term rental industries, specifically the hotel, the unions that staff their hotels. And then also, if you're looking at uh, taxis or other for hire vehicle transportation, when innovation came, they ran to their city council members saying, hey, let's slow this down. Let's keep this system we've had for the last you know, five, seven decades in place and stop these new services from operating. If you're a progressive, you might not care that much that Uber has been able to balloon their valuation to tens of billions of dollars. That doesn't really do much for you as a progressive. And maybe you don't particularly care about shareholder value and things like that. Similar with Airbnb, 
If you're a progressive, what is there to like about Uber, Airbnb, and the sharing economy? Well, I think the easiest thing is it just clearly brings services that were previously reserved for the 1% to the 99%. I mean, rich people have always been able to get four higher vehicle transportation. Or I know we've talked about Flight Now on this podcast in the past, kind of an Uber for private planes. Rich people have always had private planes. Who hasn't had access to it was the middle class and people with low incomes. But now, I know uh, I've done research on New York City looking at all the rides where the growth went to low income outer borough areas the fastest. So I think progressives should definitely be behind these services because it's all about technology increasing options and decreasing costs, which is what we've seen for the past few decades. So there are certainly some uh, effects of the sharing economy that a progressive could like, as you mentioned um, you know, just there's the basic problem that if you're an African-American living in New York City, good luck getting a taxi. Uh, even though there's rules saying that taxis have to pick everyone up that, you know, you can't. There's also it. rules saying they uh, have to take credit cards. Yeah. We all know how often that's. <laughs> yeah, there's no magic law that just prevents <laughs> racial discrimination, right? Whereas Uber, because of the way the app works, it's much harder to racially discriminate. And you have uh, platforms like Airbnb that when they saw that people were discriminating against minority guests, they stepped in to try to alter the platform in order to rectify that. So there's certainly some good things there. You know, the outer boroughs are getting served more. Um, maybe people staying in Airbnb brings um, business to uh, local businesses that otherwise are not near hotels, so they wouldn't get that tourist income. But there are some things about these platforms that are not terribly progressive. Uh, there's a progressive value of job security and having a, a long ability to work for a long amount of time at a place and then retire uh, and have your benefits and be secure in your job. And Uber and Lyft, they come into cities, they disrupt. And yes, that's a nice capitalist value, but it's not necessarily a progressive value because they're displacing taxi drivers and they're uh, creating havoc in the market, which could uh, lead to people losing their jobs or not having uh, security in their retirement. So that's not particularly progressive. Is that why there's such a backlash? Because it, it butts up against things like job security and uh, health care and things like that, where the taxi industry and the hotel industry provide much more stability to their employees prior to the creative destruction of these innovative platforms. Well, I think what we're seeing, one of the reasons why progressives have come out against the sharing economy, whereas a few years ago, they were in full embrace of it. It was really random on if it was a Republican or a Democratic mayor trying to limit Uber or Airbnb. It wasn't like a party line thing. Yeah, it's really become one as, you know, we all know everything has to these days, apparently. <laughs> but what I think the main reason why is because the sharing economy, because technology, it goes far, far beyond Uber and Airbnb. So the independent work, working as an independent contractor through an online platform, that's not just for unskilled, relatively like, similar services like Uber. It's for skilled professionals as well. Everyone now, because of technology and these lower transaction costs that you mentioned earlier, they can reach customers and work for themselves easier than ever before. But that changes the paradigm we've had since the 1930s, which is you go to work, you punch a time card, you have a boss, then your employer takes care of your health care, you get minimum wage protection, overtime law. All these things were built for a time when it was so much more expensive and more difficult to work for yourself. Now that we're seeing this massive shift, unions, which already have the lowest percentage on record of young workers joining their ranks, are very worried about this. Because when you're working for yourself as an independent contractor, you can't collectively bargain. And I think that's the reason we've seen people like Bernie Sanders saying he's not a fan of Uber, people like Elizabeth Warren saying that they take advantage of workers. And of course, Secretary Clinton, when she was running for president, talking about how Uber takes advantage of workers as well. So I think that's the reason we've seen a lot of this progressive opposition, when in theory, they should be great fans of this. 
But there's a reason that we had these progressive policies, right? I mean, you turn the clock back 100 years a little bit before that. You had the Industrial Revolution. Uh, you had the Jungle uh, that was written. You had, um, uh, that was Upton Sinclair, I believe. You had child labor. You had pollution. You had uh, not a lot of job security. You had people getting injured and losing their jobs. You didn't have retirement benefits and health benefits. And maybe not all of those things are needed in 2017, but there was a reason that the progressive movement was born. And there's a reason that these policies were put into place. So yes, it might seem like a 1960s framework, but there are many people like uh, former Secretary of Labor Robert Reich who see the sharing economy as the share of the scraps economy. It's because people cannot find a full-time job that has benefits, that has security, that has stability. So they're forced to resort to online platforms where they can, yes, they can put their dead capital to use. And yes, they can use their car and their home and whatever. But he's arguing that if circumstances were better, people could have full-time jobs and they wouldn't need to do these very uh, sporadic and uh, unsure things to make money. Is that part of the reason why Uber and Airbnb are not necessarily seen as progressive platforms? Well, there are definitely some people who end up substituting full-time work for a lot of these low-paying gigs. But the vast majority of people, if you're driving for Uber or renting on Airbnb, you're doing it part-time. You're doing this to make supplemental income. And sure, we could argue about how the economy isn't going as fast, growing as fast as we'd like it to. And that's making people have to supplement their other incomes. But I don't get why you would blame something that's helping people, I guess, get over the problems that they're facing in the labor market right now. I mean, with Lyft, for example, 80% of drivers drive under 15 hours a week. So this is something clearly that's about making money so that you can pay your car payment or so that you can go out on a Saturday night. With Airbnb, the average host is about $5,000 a year is what they're making. So far from the argument that I'm sure we'll talk about later of rich uh, oligarchs coming in and buying up uh, uh, scarce housing and using it for short-term rentals, what we're seeing, it's just ordinary people who are trying to pay their mortgage. That's why they're doing it. So I think the progressives, why they might have a point, again, I'm lumping in kind of the Bernie Sanders critique of Uber here. They might have a point on what's going on with the economy, but I think blaming the sharing economy and the new work opportunities that it creates is it's misplaced. So what about the housing argument? Because that's obviously been a major one. And you've seen that in uh, D.C. and San Francisco and New York, where uh, advocates for affordable housing are looking at the growth of Airbnb and the growth of short term rentals. And they're saying there's an opportunity cost here that if someone is renting out an apartment for short amounts of time and, you know, using it to allow tourists to visit their city all year round, that that is a unit that could otherwise be rented out by a full time resident. And there's not much that can be done to prevent uh, foreigners necessarily from buying expensive homes, turning them into uh, part-time residences. So how is it not the case that if Airbnb comes into an, an area and it uh, reduces the supply of long-term housing, is it not fair to blame Airbnb for increasing the rent? You could do that. That's what Senator Dianne Feinstein out in California did when San Francisco was trying to limit Airbnb rentals. But the data simply don't show that that argument's true. If we're looking in New York City, for example, before they passed what I view as a wrongheaded law against uh, renting when you're not uh, there, like a ban. On yeah, you can rent. only rent out your apartment if you are present in the apartment. Otherwise, it has to be a 30-day or longer, so a long-term rental, not a short-term yeah, rental. Yeah, so if you went on vacation or stayed with your significant other, you can't rent out your home that night. Right. Uh, but what we're seeing right now is what Senator Feinstein argued, is that uh, Airbnb and short-term rentals were the reason that rents were high 
in San Francisco because we all know, you know, everything was a renter's paradise back before 2008 when Airbnb was founded. Like it's clearly politicians who for far too long have restricted development, of course, at the behest of even you know upper middle class people who have are the worst, I would say, when it comes to NIMBYism. But yeah, it's like once you have your house and you're settled in, you don't want to hear those drills and those uh, that construction noise of making new houses so that more people can move into your neighborhood. It's like once I got mine, I'm good. I don't want other people coming in. Well, plus, yeah, increasing supply lowers costs. It's basic economics. But what we're seeing is that cities across the U.S. for far too long, especially if we're looking, it's in California. It's on the East Coast in New York City and D.C. But where it's not is in cities like Houston that have no rental crisis, even though they've grown much faster than even San Francisco. So the problem is that cities have restricted development in the name of, let's say, oh, protecting low-income individuals or making rents affordable. But what they need to do is increase the supply so that we can have more housing. And just to show you, in New York City, again, before they passed that law, only about 1% of available houses were even up for rent on Airbnb in a night of available housing units. And out of those, 90% were people's primary residences where they were living. So that means, theoretically, you could say 0.1% of available housing units in New York City were taken off the market because of short-term rentals. Isn't it a margins game, though? I mean, when you're dealing with people constantly moving into a city and the rent is very high, yes, 0.1% sounds very small, but aren't we talking about a game of margins here? And couldn't a small increase in Airbnb activity lead to a rent increase? Or do the economic data contradict that? Well, you could, again, argue that it's a very small increase. If you said, you know what, it leads to $2 a month for everyone, maybe, maybe. I haven't seen any data to prove it, but yes, there could be a small increase. But again, the main problem is today, I think it's something like half of buildings in Manhattan couldn't even be built anymore. In your book, because you said 40%. Too, yeah, 40%. <laughs> yeah, just I'm rounding it up. <laughs> but That's so, cheating. So <laughs> what, what the problem is, is you're blaming the new guy in town rather than fixing the real problem. If we had a conversation about short-term rentals and it also tied to the overarching massive issue that's making it harder for people to live in cities, especially people who are coming and aren't you know, working in the tech sector and earning a high salary. If we had that real conversation, then I'd be open the idea to talk about short-term rentals. But right now, progressive leaders are purely using it as a distraction. I know my own city council member in D.C., even though D.C.'s got great short-term rental regulations right now, common sense ones, he's trying to put in place ones that would severely limit even my ability to rent out my basement in my house. And hilariously, the hotel industry hired a paid actress to uh, do the Fair B&B campaign, which is an anti-Airbnb campaign. Yeah, Fair B&B. It's amazing. And uh, people were laughing because this woman was portraying herself as the victim of technological progress, and she's a paid actress. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, she's not from Anacostia, whereas people in Anacostia... I can tell you there's not many hotels there, but there are now a lot of Airbnbs. So people are realizing this isn't some scary neighborhood that you read about in the crime section. This is a real community with a lot to offer, some pretty good restaurants and nice parks. Like it's something about moving people outside of the traditional tourist area that really infuses tourist dollars in a more equitable way in a city. So, of course, there are some other problems from a progressive standpoint. You make a compelling case that there are benefits uh, for progressive values and that it's not proper to be blaming technology for high rent, right? But what about the stability aspect of this? If you're driving for Uber, even if it's part-time and maybe you're doing a little task rabbit, a little thumbtack, and you've cobbled together a living using the sharing economy, our healthcare system is not set up for the sharing economy. And when you move from Uber to Lyft or to Instacart or whatever, where's your health insurance? Like, How do people 
create a retirement system out of this, right? I mean, and this gets to a larger question of just the changing nature of work, where you used to have a nine to five and you'd work for 40 years and you'd retire with a pension and then you're good to go. That's obviously not the case today, but is there something that's not progressive about the sharing economy because it's not, maybe it's the system, maybe it's the sharing economy, but it's not set up for this kind of uh, dignity through work, this uh, stability, this retirement, healthcare, things that people need. So what could be done at a policy level to allow people to have some type of security in their lives while taking advantage of tech and innovation. Yeah, first, I just want to point out that this isn't just a progressive critique of the sharing economy. A lot of conservatives, too, who want to go back to how it used to be, you know, in middle class America being built up, whatever they viewed in their heads in 1950s, 1960s. Yeah, there's certainly a populist streak in the conservative movement right now. Yeah, they're worried about the changing nature of work. But my point is, look, the only reason we had large corporations and employment in the first place was because it was too costly to go out and find the perfect person to do the job every single time. So you just brought people in house. It's very inefficient. And in a Economist uh, Ronald Coase, he won the Nobel Prize. He tried to explain why we even had firms, and he said it was all about high transaction costs. Well, technology substantially cuts transaction costs. So my point is, we're moving towards independent work, regardless of what policymakers do. It's just basic economics. That's where the trends are going. We've seen all the growth in work since 2000 has come from independent contractors. The number of people filing W-2s who are employees has actually fallen slightly since the 2000 or early 2000s. So I, we're going towards independent work, and I would love to see policy updated so that we could truly decouple healthcare from employment, because currently we're making people pay extra if they work for themselves. It's truly we're punishing independent work through our tax code. Yeah, that was one of the problems with Obamacare that kind of got lost in the media hype because people focused on people losing their insurance under the Republican plan, which is a, absolutely a valid criticism, and we should talk about that. But I think that there has not been enough focus on the impact that Obamacare had on independent work and how forcing people to buy health insurance when maybe the math doesn't work for them or pay a penalty could actually be pretty bad for them. Now, one way that people have talked about trying to fix this problem is with portable benefits. And this might require actually a deregulatory action on the federal government's part to allow companies to offer portable benefits. And one could imagine a situation where you're delivering groceries for Instacart and you decide I can actually make more money doing Uber and you want to switch over and you want to make sure that your health benefits transfer over. I mean, is this a policy that you think could be beneficial and maybe this could reduce some of the anxiety that progressives have over the sharing economy? Should we be looking at things like portable benefits in order to make the sharing economy more progressive? I think in the uh, long term, what we want to do is, again, get away by decoupling healthcare from employment. How we do you want to, do that? Uh, in the long term, you just have to get rid of the preferential tax treatment that goes to employees providing their healthcare, but not for individuals buying it on an exchange. But in the short term, because that's going to be a heavy political lift, oh I don't know God, if that'll yeah. ever even happen. In the short term, let's make it equal and allow, first of all, obviously portable benefits, because right now, if a company like Uber, for example, wanting to provide access to health benefits or retirement benefits for its independent contractors, that would count as a strike against it in the courts if someone sued saying we're actually employees. So by trying to give these workers what they want, by trying to treat these workers right, it would completely destroy their model if the courts decided then that all these independent contractors who are driving the sharing economy are employees who need to you know, punch time cards again and have bosses rather than working completely flexible for themselves. It's understandable that your book beats up on some of these progressive mayors and city councils for uh, having uh, policies that are against innovation, that are against technological progress, but it's not just progressives. We would be painting too broad a brush. I mean, 
Republicans have also been enemies of the future and enemies of innovation. Um, what is the reception that you get when you try to tell Republicans, hey, you need to increase state government power over cities and, and prevent cities from managing their local community? That challenges principles of federalism and subsidiarity. Uh, is Have you struggled in some cases to convince Republicans that the sharing economy is a good thing? Uh, in some cases, overall, I would say people of both parties, if you get outside of, you know, it, the people with well-known progressives, again, Bernie Sanders, uh, when you're talking to people from both parties, they're in general in favor of the sharing economy. They use Uber on a daily basis. Yeah, look at they, Uber's like executives. Uh, there, there are a lot of them are Democrats, uh, former Obama people like David Plouffe. So what we're seeing right now is I don't think that it's specifically being a partisan issue, it's being forced into one. So when I talk about preemption, I don't even want states to create new powers. All I want states to be able to do is realize that they have the tools to rein in cities when, for example, local policies threaten state tax revenue or apply decades-old regulation to new technology or make it harder for people to find work, increasing the unemployment rate in the state. These are all things where states have the power to overrule cities, and I just want them to have that toolkit and be aware that they have it. Again, my default is towards local control. I think whenever we can do it, let's have local um, communities police their affairs. When it comes to something, again, like moving beyond just the sharing economy, autonomous vehicles, drones, if you had a bunch of city council members, look, they don't know what they're talking about. It's, on a, this, it's a and patchwork. I don't blame them. Yeah, yeah. You get thousands of regulations and it's very difficult for any company to navigate that web. Um, so this book, How Progressives or sorry, how progressive cities fight innovation. Uh, I think your audience might not necessarily be progressives with a title like that, but uh, in general, what's the reception like? And do you have any uh, final words before we close off the show? I think the main thing I've realized is this is going to be an uphill battle because a lot of Republicans are knee-jerk to local control or on principle vote against it. But what I care about is individual freedom, technological advancement. And when local policies get in the way of that, my principles in favor of technology and freedom overweigh my, uh, I guess, uh, how I'm a fan of local control still on certain issues. That makes sense. Well, uh, the book is out. It's uh, How Progressive Cities Fight Innovation. You can buy it on Amazon. I got a copy for free because I'm friends with Jared. How nice is that? Uh, my guest has been Jared Meyer, research fellow at the Foundation for Government Accountability. Jared, thanks for joining the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Are you a research fellow or senior fellow? A uh, senior fellow. Uh, well, I'm sorry. I just, get, I just demoted you on my That's podcast. <laughs> He's a senior fellow, right? So make sure that you... Consider that when you consider his arguments, that he is a senior fellow, not a research fellow. <laughs> uh, but Jared, thanks for joining the show. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter. I'll link to that in the show notes, and I'll link to the Amazon link so you can buy his book. Find this podcast in the iTunes store. Please write us a, re re ugh, please write us a review because it will help others find the show. And that's what the sharing economy is all about, right? Feedback. So give us more feedback. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Send us an email at mediatechfreedom.org when you have any thoughts about the show, even if you hate it. I'd love to hear that. But that's it for today. Uh, we'll see you next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.